Hey, Jerry Walker, class of 93. Here with the Left Coast Pirates. You guys doing a great job. We appreciate what y'all doing out there. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Good afternoon, Michael. How you doing today? Doing well, Tommy. How you doing? Mike, I thought we were done. We did the season preview already. I thought we had all these interviews in the bag, but we had one more come up and we couldn't say no, could we? No, he's, he's too big of a, a name on the Seton Hall hit list. I mean, when you have another member of the 92-93 team that is arguably the best collection of talent on one Seton Hall basketball roster, how can you pass up bringing on Arturis Kornishevis? We had Jerry Walker. I guess Terry's going to have to be next, huh? He was the first player from a Soviet-occupied country to play basketball in an American college, attended Seton Hall from 1990 to 1994. One of only two players and the only Seton Hall men's basketball player to win Big East Scholar Athlete twice. One of three Seton Hall players to reach the NCAA tournaments in each of his four years at school. Finished as a 1,500 point scorer. Earned second team all Big East accolades twice. Was inducted into the school's Athletic Hall of Fame in 2008. Multiple time bronze medal winner. Numerous professional accolades from Europe, including FIBA European Player of the Year in 96, currently the general manager of the Denver Nuggets. Welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, pirate great Arturis Karnishevis. Arturis, how you doing today? How you doing, guys? Doing great. Hey, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule with the preseason kicking off recently in the NBA. Speaking of the new season, how are things looking for your Denver Nuggets heading into the new year? Uh, so far, so good. Uh, we had a pretty quiet uh, summer. We uh, retained 12 players. Uh, out of last year's team so we all about continuation and we added Jeremy Grant and Vladko Chanchar um, and then uh, drafted Ball Ball in the second round so we made a couple changes we had training camp in uh, Colorado Springs that we spent five six days and then uh, yesterday we just started preaching. we're pretty happy with where we at Arturis did you ever think that someday you'd be putting together an NBA roster when you were playing ball back in Lithuania as a kid? No way. <laughs> no way. I uh, uh, I mean, uh, that idea was forming uh, when I started working for the league when I retired. I worked in New York uh, for the league office for five years. And uh, then I made a jump uh, to Houston Rockets. I worked there for five years. Uh, the ambitions uh, 
came uh, during during that time. And then in 2013, when I got offered a job with the Nuggets uh, as assistant GM, so that's that. I got uh, really excited, and now it's been. This is my seventh season with the Nuggets, and it's amazing how uh, time flies. So, Arturis, I, I want to go back to those playing days of your youth. You know, from back in 1987 to 1990, you were playing for, and I, I'm hopefully I'm not mispronouncing this, but Beastie St- Stat- Stataba uh, was a was a Stativa. youth basketball club Stativa. out in uh, Villainous. Yeah. So- Statiba. So it's um, so it was a club that actually my father played. Uh, it was uh, they played on the highest division in Soviet Union at that time. So there were two Lithuanian teams, Zhalgiris and Statiba. And um, Zhalgiris was the one that was always on top, and that's where Sabonis played. And then Statiba was uh, based in Vilnius, and uh, the guy that played for Statiba was Marcelonis, Sharunas Marcelonis, who in 1989 joined. The Golden State Warriors. So when I came to Statiba, he kind of took took me under his wing, and I kind of played played with them for like a year and a half, learned from him. Well, normally at this point, we usually ask former players what schools were recruiting them and what their ideas were when mm-hmm. they were going through that process. But with your situation, it's a little different. If the Seton Hall opportunity hadn't come around, what was your plan beyond high school? Uh, I had no plan um, because I was the first uh, at that time Soviet Union athlete playing, playing uh, basketball in college. So nobody knew exactly how to execute this idea of, uh, you know, of the Soviet or Lithuanian athlete playing in college. And I'm sure at that time NCAA or, you know, college uh, college teams didn't know how to recruit because it never happened before. So I was supposed to do it uh, then, you know, later on opened the floodgates. Uh, obviously, after Lithuania got their freedom, a lot of Lithuanian players start, start coming and playing college ball. So I'm glad to be the first one to do it. So I read somewhere that Sharunas Marcelonis ran into Seton Hall head coach PJ Carlissimo at the 1990 FIBA World Championships and put in a good word for you. Is there any any truth to that rumor? He did. He did. So I think uh, it, it happened a little bit earlier, I think, um, because uh, Sharunas came in in '89. Uh, and I kind of came uh, to the States in 1989, stayed with uh, uh, an American-Lithuanian family uh, in the Jersey Shore and kind of learned the language from TV shows and from a street <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and was taking my SATs uh, and waiting for the answer. And the second time worked out pretty well. Able to, uh, to sign a letter of intent. Did PJ actually get a chance to see you play ball, or did he give you a scholarship sight unseen? So what happened was in uh, 1989 in the summer, I played for Soviet Union uh, junior team, and I was the captain. And we did a tour of 11 games uh, around the United States. We played with the top high school players in each state, and that's when they saw me. You know, and and we played uh, top teams. Uh, that that's actually when uh, Kenny Anderson was coming out, played for Georgia Tech and, you know, on the West Coast it was uh, Trace and Murray. So, you know, the teams were pretty good and pretty good competition. I think we won only two games out of 11, but uh, it was a blast and that's the tour that uh, people saw, saw me play. So, there was a lot of political pressure at that time about defecting. Do you think that they were going to let you stay in the United States?
States? I didn't know, probably because of uh, 18-year-old ig ignorance. I actually arrived with uh, Statiba because Statiba did uh, also a friendly game tour in the United States in, uh, in the fall of 1989. And I, had, I didn't know what to expect uh, because, again, you know, there's so many questions. Am I leaving? Is this really happening? Am I actually leaving? And uh, usually when, when you leave uh, the Soviet Union, you have to go to Moscow. So our team went to Moscow and we stayed there for extra three days. And I will never know why, but, you know, obviously they were trying to solve uh, my question. You know, they're going to let them uh, let us go and play games in the United States. Uh, so I think it took them three three days to decide what they want to do with me, to let me go or to, to keep me in Soviet Now, political drama of the Cold War aside, it still had to be a difficult transition for you. You were, in fact, like we mentioned, the first player from a Soviet-occupied territory to come play collegiately in the States. What kind of concerns yeah. or fears did you have making the move? Well, again, you know, if we remember, I mean, those days, there were no cell phones, right? So it was, uh, and even if you call, uh, you know, there was very slight possibility that you're going to call to Soviet Union. So it's it was letter writing. <laughs> so I wrote a lot of letters, if you ever remember uh, that craft. And, oh, uh, days, right? Yeah. And, and it was very, very difficult times because it was my, you know, I just took uh, my bags and left. You know, just imagine my parents, you know, they didn't know they're going to see me again. So I, you know writing letters and uh, missing home and taking SAT tests. Am I going to go to Seaman Hall or not? I don't know. Uh, what's happening in Soviet Union? It's falling apart. What's going to happen to Lithuania? So there were a lot of uh, political questions, which which were frightening. And I remember my father coming um uh, I think it was uh, the summer of 1990, and uh, watching the coup on TV with with me, and uh, and and just listening to uh, to memories of Lithuanian before Lithuania got their freedom, uh, there was an attempt for the. Uh, Lithuanian government, and uh, there were a lot of. You know, it was uh, in times, and I remember even playing my freshman year with uh, about my parents, about my friends, about my family, and basketball, and seeing all was my escape. Now I could appreciate that. You know, my parents came over from Poland in 1970, and they had a they had some issues with the transition to assimilating into American culture. Now, that must have been even harder at the university level. Well, to tell you the truth, you know, when you're transitioning to a better life, I don't think it's hard. I think, you know, from, you know, my favorite stores is going to supermarket and seeing the choices of food that you see um, on the shelves. And, you know, some of the family members are crying when they see it, when they see it. Uh, so I don't think, uh, you know, because we, we didn't know any better. So now you come into to America and everything is better. So when you have to get used to a better life, it's not that difficult. So I... I I saw no difficulties to adjust. I was just obviously thinking about my 
family and friends that were left behind. So those were the tough. Is that what you miss most about Lithuania in that first year of school was family and friends? Yes. I mean, you're a young kid. For the first time you have uh, left your country and living somewhere else, um, not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, you know, you're going to go to school or not. And when that actually finally happened, I was happy. But I, I actually, I got my SAT scores and on my birthday. So it was very uh, happy happy moments. Well, Arturis, it, you know, obviously it sounds like you had a good transition culturally to Seton Hall in the United States. It also seemed like your game made the same type of transition because you didn't miss a beat at all. You were clearly productive right out of the gate as a freshman, and you went on to compile some pretty impressive overall career numbers as a Pirate. So bear with me for a second because I, I think your numbers speak for themselves, and your all-time ranks at Seton Hall from when you were there from 90 to 94. You graduated 12th overall on the scoring list. You were ninth in three-point field goals made, second in career career field goal percentage, three-point field goal percentage, 16th in career rebounding, 12th in free throws, 5th in free throw percentage, and you also won the Haggerty Award. Now, what what about your play allowed you to integrate into the college game and the Seton Hall system so easily? I really had no problem to adjust my game, but now it's those conversations are going back, even now talking to the, you know, the, the rule changes and the way they, you know, the rule perception, even in the league, the way they call travel, uh, all of a sudden, the Euro step is here, and they don't call any travel. When in the early '90s, when I brought it to college my freshman year, they called uh, my Euro step as a travel every time I did it. So, <laughs> you know, it's not travel anymore. Uh, but I had no no trouble because you know I've played already uh, since since I was 16 on a level with uh, you know with adults and competed on a very high level. You know, my concern was when I came to, uh, came to the United States. I had to keep myself somehow in shape for one year before I went to, to Seen Hall. So I, I participated in some regional leagues, uh, two, three leagues at a time, just to, you know, training outside on outside courts. So it was a journey how to survive that one year. But um, freshman year was really good. Um I came in obviously in very good shape and you know we had an unbelievable year because we went all the way to final eight so for me to come in and first year and to go to Seattle and play uh, in final eight against UNLV with Larry Johnson, Stacey Osmond, Greg Anthony that was a blast. So we always like to ask players who play for PJ this next question so he was known for being very vociferous with his coaching style how did that resonate with you on top of having to deal with the language barrier like is PJ just kind of screaming and yelling and it's going in one ear and out the other because you don't know what he's saying well you know he's very creative with his words um (laughs) (laughs) so uh you know I the one thing that I cared is that that he cared about you and that he gave me playing time so I started from my first game and I remember and, uh, Anthony Avent was uh, one of the seniors and uh, Oliver Taylor was one of the seniors at that time so the integration was pretty easy as long as I was on a court that's all I cared about especially when you're thinking about home and what's going on at home basketball court was my escape so PJ gave me that uh, freedom and uh, I was able to uh, perform now we we mentioned that coming to the U.S. to play collegiately now is a more common path for Euros and Aussies and all, all sorts of folks from all around the world but for Pirate fans you're still the standard how do you react when you hear that these young players are being compared to your benchmark 
mark for success? Well, I'm glad that, you know, Seen Hall is having some success recently and, you know, and people will start, you know, forgetting, <laughs> forgetting those times because they, you know, the current success we will overshadow uh, in the past because every time if, if, if people remember you and they still want you to <laughs> come in and play for them, then that means they haven't done much. But I think the recent success of uh, what Seen Hall has done and, uh, uh, you know, Kevin Willett has done a great job. So I think uh, the program is, you know, doing very well. But again, you know, when somebody remembers you, when you when you go to, you know, Seen Hall games and uh, they recognize you, it's, it's, it's obviously a great feeling and warm feeling. Uh, but again, you know, Seen Hall was my uh, second home. I never denied that. Speaking of the program having success, you actually hold a distinction of being one of only three players in Seton Hall program history to have played in four NCAA tournaments. How special was it to be a part of the NCAA tournament so often? You already talked about the Elite Eight, but you got a chance to go back there every year. Every year. Uh, my last year was a very tough one um, until the last uh, moment. We didn't know if we were going to make it, but we did. However, we ran into Michigan State in the first game. So, I mean, it feels good. It was great times for seeing all basketball. And uh, I've, I've played with a lot of great players and were, was coached by a lot of uh, great coaches. Uh, besides the fact that, you know, the education was also very important for me and I graduated in four years. Experience in Seen Hall was uh, amazing for me. I want to go a little deeper. So specifically into your junior season, that team had a ton of success winning in both the Big East regular season and actually the tournament title that year, earning you guys a number two seed overall in the NCAA tournament. But my question is this. How much pressure was there to make it back to a final four, just like the 89 team did? We felt it. I think, you know, obviously when we lost to uh, Western Kentucky, that was uh, a bitter memory. We should have gone obviously much further. That said, that team was probably one of the best teams I've, I've seen. The things just didn't work out. Uh, we, uh, I think we just uh, crumbled mentally and, uh, you know, put too much pressure on ourselves to just go go past Western Kentucky and that didn't work out well. And that's, that was very disappointing, actually, because that, that was the last year that uh, Terry was with us, Terry DeHair, Jerry Walker, and, you know, Luther Wright. All those guys were a huge part of the, that team. We had Jerry on and it definitely was a sore spot for him. We asked him what he remembered from his senior season yeah. and immediately he went to that loss and not Love talking Jerry. about like the 30-point win in the Big East title game over Syracuse. I want to, I, I don't mean to come belabor this game but i want to ask you a couple more questions about that western kentucky loss specifically you seemed really frustrated because because i know you got into a ton of foul trouble that game and it looked like your emotions were kind of all over you you know you you were wearing those emotions on your face you were a very composed player from what i had seen over the years but that game in particular you seems like you had gotten kind of frustrated with the refs i agree Uh, great memory um i did uh show a lot of emotion because well first i hate to lose and uh Second, um, the harder we tried, the worse it got. Uh, the hard, you know, the the harder we tried, and I was getting in foul trouble uh, because we weren't making shots, and we were getting, uh, you know, deeper, deeper in trouble. And it was just frustrating that uh, kind of realizing that you know we're not going to be able to bring a lot of those guys back, and this is it. So that was very emotional for me. Did you think those were two offensive fouls? I, I didn't think they were offensive fouls. I don't even. <laughs> 
I don't even remember. Uh, you dug you you that the Western Kentucky guy twice and you, you got your like knees up in his chest, but I, I thought he got there late and we we're like, all right, end the foul. And all of a sudden they were calling it the other way. I, I agree. But at the end of the day, I think that, you know, those, those calls were not uh, the reason that we lost. The margin was much bigger. Do you, do you have a take as to why you think you lost? Do I have a take? I, I You know, it's sports, you know, somebody has to lose and, that particular is just the way you know NCAA tournament is structured. Every given day, uh, somebody's going to have to lose, and uh, that day was was us. Well, we're going to change the topic a little bit here. We're going to get a little more positive. But <laughs> during your time and after your time at Seton Hall, you had a lot of success as a member of the Lithuanian national team. You won bronze medals in both 1992 and 96, and. Uh, and as everyone remembers, the 92 Olympics were the dream team Olympics, so to speak, where the first time where NBA players were actually allowed to play on that team. Now, before we get too much into that, to those games, you were kind of a movie star. You, there was a movie documentary called The Other Dream Team, which talked about mm -hmm. the incredible journey of the Lithuanian national team, which culminated with your triumph of obviously winning the bronze medal. Take us through the, that journey and how the Grateful Dead of all people helped your team along the way. Well, I don't know how much time you have. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> as much as you So I was coming up actually very challenging year. My sophomore year, I partially tore my uh, knee ligaments and I was out for like a month and a half. And then I came back at the end, but I didn't feel that I was in nearly 100% at the end of uh, my sophomore year. So now when the year, you know, was over, uh, I was invited by Lithuanian national team uh, to participate to qualify first for Olympics and then go to Olympics. This was my first time coming back after coming in 1989. So for three years, I haven't been in Lithuania. So I had you know, even, even though, you know, Lithuania uh, were a free country and, you know, uh, there was no problem coming back, I still have, you know, anxiety uh, going back to Lithuania. So I had to deal with that. So I finally got to Lithuania and uh, after a week or two, I got more comfortable. And so, hey, you know, Lithuania is actually, you know, a free country right now and we can, uh, we can function uh, as Lithuanians. So, Following uh, that period, you know, we start the training uh, for a 92 qualifying tournament because uh, we were newly uh, reborn country and because we didn't participate in any qualifyings before we had to qualify. So we played 11 games uh, in Spain uh, uh, going through cities like Badajoz, Saragossa to qualify and we won all 11 games. And prior to that, you know, for us to do all these trips and all the financing, that's when uh, Grateful Dead came into play and they start, uh, they, they were helping us uh, financially to uh, accomplish those uh, barriers. You know, and again, you know, I can keep on going. You know, the, the actual participation in Olympics was amazing uh, because, you know, I'm, after my sophomore year in college and I'm playing dream teams, basically, consisted of players that I grew up watching and you know that was the reason I was playing and here they are on one team from Michael to Magic to uh, you know Carl Malone to Patrick Ewing to you know although that you know 
Pippen, uh, and obviously I, I got it Charles Barkley, so that that didn't go well. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so the the, the final accomplishment was a bronze medal, which was amazing for the country of Lithuania, and you know, and for the bronze medal, we beat unified team which was even more special. So we had our president there and, you know, we celebrated, you know, champagne was flowing in the locker room. It was amazing experience, uh, the best experience of my life in terms of athletics. Of course, you know, meeting my wife and seeing all that was, that was the best. Yeah. Make so. sure you get that in there. We don't want to miss that. <laughs> but She's honey, not around, but I'm going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. Well, a- any specific on-court moment that you remember personally about playing that dream team? Well, Everybody reminded me uh, when I fouled out, I sat on the bench and I was taking pictures of the game. But, uh, yeah, well, the, the, the particular one that was special for me was because PJ was uh, part of uh, coaching staff for Dream Team. And I was fouled and I was shooting a foul shot and I was looking to the sideline and he was there on the bench. So just seeing him there, it was great. Knowing that I'm gonna... though, right? No, no, he was just smiling. And uh, <laughs> so it was good to... Uh, you know, good memory. He was so. probably going to make you run laps if you missed any foul shots. Yeah. Well, after game, we we all took a took a picture with Dream Team, and it's still you know I framed it. I mean, it's one of the best memories. Do you think their influence had a great presence on the international stage uh, that helped grow the game itself? I think that was the last time there was such a huge separation. I think uh, basketball started growing globally, and it was spreading really. F- quick you know soccer was a dominant sport by by a mile but basketball was gaining uh, some ground and uh, i think in 1996 we we lost by 20 which was not that bad again we we gained bronze medal which you know in olympics in atlanta it was amazing as well and uh and then in 2000 uh lithuania actually played us and uh, he came down to the last possession of lithuania and this or sharuna uh sharuna who actually went to university of maryland missed a three-point shot to uh to to win a game so it, it seemed like the experience of, the, of that those olympics and winning the bronze medal built immense confidence in this specific group do you believe that without this success the team might not have gone on to achieve some of its other future success for example you guys won the bronze medal again in the 1996 atlanta uh, olympics you guys also were in very successful in the european championships in 1995 in greece you guys finished second and got a silver you lost to yugoslavia 96 90 in the finals you played up against sharunish marcelonis who won the mvp you averaged almost 18 points a game which was ninth best for the tournament and your teammate arvita sabonis finished with 22 and 15 for the tourney yeah well the players that you just mentioned you know it's easy to to win games with them so uh you know Savonis Machilones they were such a great players and such a huge part of our success and I was privileged to be part of those teams but in terms of success I think uh, Lithuanian basketball had you know historically even 1937 and 1939 won European championships we always joke you know when we said that you know we took Naismith book and made it our Bible. Basketball has been always number one sport in the country. I think there's only two in the world. I think Philippines and Lithuania, that basketball is such a dominant sport. So Lithuania have uh, very deep uh, basketball traditions. And as, as I remember, I actually retired in 2002 and was able to go to, in 2003 to watch the European Championship in Sweden, where Lithuania was 
Victoria's there too. So there's a lot of tradition, a lot, a lot of history there. So that's a sport that we love. Marshall Lonas and Sabonis are, are two iconic players in the history of the Soviet Union and European basketball. Both players actually went on to become members of the Basketball Hall of Fame, but didn't get to the States until later in their career. How good were they when they were younger in their career? I don't, I don't think people got to see how great they were, you know, when they played their, their final years in the NBA. Well, they were, for me, they were amazing. You know, I'm grew up watching those guys and uh, cheering for them. And then I was obviously fortunate to play with them. You know, Sharunas and uh, kind of went different path where Sabonis was actually playing already for Soviet Union national team since he was like uh, 18 years old, I think, because he was that good that early. Uh, Sharunas took um, a longer path, but I think uh, by the time he was 25, I want to say he was also close to being MVP of the European Championship in 1987, I want to say, because the world were in 86. So, and then uh, together uh, they uh, they won the '88 Olympics for Soviet Union, and uh, starting five had uh, four Lithuanians in the starting five, and one Ukrainian. Your play in these international tournaments only seemed to get better over the years as well. For example, in the 1997 championships, you guys finished sixth in the quarterfinals, but you averaged 20.7 points per game, 5.9 rebounds per game, 3.9 assists per game. These were all top 10 ranks for the tourney. What allowed you to be to take your game to the next level on such a big stage? Well, you know, I, my, my dream was obviously to play in the NBA. And in 1994, that's when the PJ took a Portland job. And I went through summer, didn't get drafted. I uh, was very disappointed and went through this uh, very hard times of, uh, you know, trying out for Milwaukee Bucks and getting cut the day before the season started by Milwaukee. So now what do I do now? So I went to Lithuania and played in the qualifiers in November, played three games uh, while I was thinking what I was going to do. And I got a job in Cholet in, in France um, to play in French National uh, uh, League and play, uh, it's called. And I had a very good tournament. I averaged there, I don't know, 20, 21 points in, in France and people start you know, kind of noticing and then went to 95 European Championship without a contract and uh, was able to uh, get Barcelona's attention. And that's when Barcelona signed me. So 95, 96 season was probably one of, you know, my most successful seasons where I earned the European Player of the Year honors. So now I was coming off that season to be in the 97 European Championship, which I had a lot of success as well. So I'm just try I just tried to give you a history why 97 was such a, in terms of individual accomplishment was, uh, you know, obviously team finished uh, sixth, uh, but we qualified for the world championship in 98, which you had to be top six. So in a way, we kind of accomplished what I'm just. Arturis, how competitive was the level of play in these leagues compared to the FIBA championships or even the NBA? Well, I think uh, after NBA, I think, uh, you know, Europe is most competitive league. It was then, and I think it's now. So uh, it was you know, again, it's 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 not a great. It's it's. It, I said it's not a bad. Um, obviously, second choice. You know, always try to. Even when I played in Europe, I was always trying to get back to NBA, but never got a chance to do it. I got a chance to do it now as a as an executive, uh, which 
obviously I love that experience. But uh, yeah, European leagues were really good. There were a lot of players, but the perception, uh, which is uh, constantly changing of uh, international players, was not at the level uh, that I wanted to. Uh, but then again, you know, Dirk came in 98, 99, uh, 99 European Championship. Actually, Dirk played uh, already for Germany. So, so those were the times of change that uh, NBA was looking f- more and more to for international players and uh, the number of international players in the league uh, was changing. Actually, right right now, there's a, a quarter of the league. Well, the awards you won during your time in Europe is nothing to sneeze at. I could go on for a long time listing them all, but some of the ones that jump out were the FIBA European Player of the Year, like you mentioned, in 96. You were FIBA Eurostars MVP in 97. You won three Spanish League championships over the time. Which of these accomplishments from this list do you hold the most regard for? Well, I've, I've mentioned before, I'm a, you know, playing for the national team, probably my, my dearest accomplishments, you know, playing for with and especially Olympics. Um, those are memories. You know, walking in the stadium with other athletes and eating cafeteria and seeing, you know, elite track runners and tennis players and all those athletes was uh, special. Well, you know, it, I didn't play professionally uh, for a very long time. I played only eight years and every stop was uh, dear to me. I just played most of my time in Barcelona uh, for four years and that's where my oldest son was born. So I love that city. So you already kind of alluded to the fact that you only played eight professional seasons, but that you did go on to actually have a very successful professional career in basketball, you know, post playing days. When you initially took a, a job in 2003 for the NBA office, uh, working for their, in their operations, how did you know it was time to kind of hang things up and move on from the playing days to more of a executive role in your career? Well, I was a different kind of guy. <laughs> I, I uh, planned it for a while. I planned it. I wanted to retire actually a year prior to 2002, but I stayed for one more year in Barcelona, finished that year and decided to, uh, to retire. And I when I decided the decision was actually made uh, easier for me just because I was actually suffering from uh, deterioration in my knee and I was just not happy the way I've been playing for for a while and you know the anti-inflammatories uh, painkillers and all this stuff so I just try to say enough is enough I don't want to be in a wheelchair when I'm 40, 40 years old so I stepped away from the game but but again I thought I'm gonna be doing nothing but I was like for the first three months I was like uh, you know lying in the cage and wanted to do something and started to work for you know financial firm for a year, uh, which also was based in uh, New York City. And then after a year, I got a call from uh, uh, Kim Bahuni, who, you know, executive in the league office and said, you know what, I'll need some help. Uh, the, the number of international players are growing and our league is getting more global. So I need some help. That's when I joined the league office. So one of the programs that you got to participate in while you were part of the NBA operations office was Basketball Without Borders. Did that just kind of naturally resonate with you because of your background? Well, first of, first of all, it was an amazing experience, you know, and, and it was almost those kids that were coming to Basketball Without Borders, their dream was pretty, 
pretty much the same. Come and play basketball in you know in the states and in college, you know, in college, and go from there. And to run those camps, uh, you know, understaffed but long hours. And one of my favorite memories is uh, you know getting a couple of vans and driving uh, the All Star team from from Africa for eleven friendly games with high schools in in the state of Texas in Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio area and just like chaperoning them and and showing off their talent and most of those uh, players ended up uh, playing college ball and some of them actually even uh, played in the NBA so it was very rewarding. You then took a job with the Houston Rockets as an international scout. Did you just see that as a natural progression? I did uh, you know five years I was exposed to pretty much um, you know everything in terms of contracts in terms of uh, players organizational structure um, you know NBA League office was run like a company so it's writing consistently reporting meetings departments and just it was like a boot camp of basketball for me five years which i could be where i'm at today uh, with all this five years so after five years i got some interest from europe uh on you know becoming executive there but uh, i was not sure if that was the the way to go because i wanted to be on the team side in or in work for the nba team and i did informational interviews uh, with executives nba executives uh, what should i do you know is it better for me to take gm job in europe and uh, work my way up and then uh, hopefully the nba team will say okay now it's time for you to <laughs> To come to the NBA, but uh, every uh, every executive said you should uh, take a, a scouting job and then work your way up. Uh, that's what I did. I took a scouting job with Houston, you know, with Daryl Morey and Sam Hinkie and Gerson Rosas. Five years of uh, being exposed to uh, the trades, to um, to draft process, to uh, pre-draft workouts and trade deadlines and all that stuff prepared me for what I was what I've been doing in, in Denver for the past uh, six years. So as you brought up, this helped you in your next transition to be a, the assistant general manager with the Nuggets. Now, in 2017, it was rumored that you and a few other candidates were finalists for the Milwaukee Bucks position. How close were you to becoming the GM of the Bucks at that time? You know, I'm not going to comment on how close I was. To, you know, our ownership, uh, thanks to them, you know, they, you know, they came in and promoted me and it was like I think it was a week before the draft so so it was a very sensitive time but that was that worked out really well because I just uh, from the first day when uh, Tim came to me and we sat down with uh, Josh Kroenke and Tim Conley and uh, what we envisioned to do in Denver it's actually happening right now and uh, to leave the play this place really didn't want to and um, you know it's all about uh, you know now you know we, we start talking about championships so it's it's very exciting time so at the end of the day uh, I'm really happy the way the things worked out. Is it also true that you turned down an opportunity to interview with the Sixers? It's speculation. <laughs> speculation time. Gotta ask, I gotta ask it. Come on. Well, I was uh, I was also interviewing for Brooklyn job as well. Touche, <laughs> yeah. touche. All right. So, so these, these are all great accomplishments. If you kind of worked your way up uh, to where you are with the, the Denver Nuggets, and it has been uh, recognized by 
uh, your alma mater in Seton Hall when you recently received the most distinguished alumnus award, which is the most prestigious alumni award given by the university to someone who has been recognized as an outstanding leader in his or her professional field. How does an award like that make you feel about your current achievements? Um, I was humbled. I was humbled, uh, you know, a short time before that I was in, you know, inducted into Athletic Scene Hall of Fame, which it was amazing for me. And then when I got that award, I'm like, okay, I'm done, you know, and, uh, but it was very special for me and it was very special for my family. But uh, uh, the school has been, has a special place in my heart. So it was, it was really, really a great experience. One more question here. So let's get back to the NBA a little bit. Heading into the 2019-2020 season, you said it to start off the podcast, you bring back 12 players from last year's roster that had the best home record in the NBA. And it's also still the third youngest overall roster to boot. With all the changes to different rosters in the Western Conference this year, how do you like your team's chances to make it actually to the NBA Finals? I feel good. I feel good uh, about our team, uh, the group of players that we got in the locker room. Uh, they like to play with it, you know, with each other. Uh, they play for each other. And uh, last year was an amazing year. Uh, every week we were getting franchise record this. And then with six games to go in a season, we were going to Golden State to play for the first uh, spot in the West. So you couldn't ask for more. And we were in a playoffs. We were one bucket away from Western Conference Finals. It was a very difficult uh, loss for our for our team because it was at home. You couldn't ask for more for seventh game to be at home, but uh, we were, again, a couple uh, buckets away from Western Conference Finals. And uh, uh, with those thoughts, we went to uh, into the summer thinking, you know, uh, we happy where we are with, with our group. Our uh, young core got uh, great experience, uh, 100 games uh, this season, you know, including 14 in the playoffs. Uh, so we don't, we didn't want to make any, a lot of changes. And then the opportunity came where we uh, got Jeremy Grant, became available in the trade. So we added him and we added another international asset, uh, Vladko Chanchar. And so far we have uh, 14 players on the roster that we plan to have. And we, we're ready to do it. And we start on Wednesday uh, against Portland. It's going to be on ESPN and I invite everybody to watch. So shame on me. What what NBA GM is not going to say his team is going to go to the NBA Finals, right? <laughs> exactly. we all undefeated right now. The we all feel GM. good about the our team. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But, uh, you know, speaking of continuation, you know, when you have continuation, then you've seen things done and easier to implement uh, the same stuff uh, when uh, – Teams are assembled, uh, newly assembled. It's, it's, it's obviously more obstacles. And, and again, I'm happy where we are and that we have, we brought back uh, 12 same players. So. so, our tourists, before we let our guests go, we always make them walk the plank. We give you five rapid fire questions. We're looking for five rapid fire answers. Are you ready for this? I am not, but let's do it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Here we go. Question number one. Most points scored in any game at any level? Uh, 43. Which team, when you were in college, was your biggest arch rival? UConn. Toughest road environment? Turkey. Uh, Turkish, uh, Turkish league. Uh, playing in Turkish teams in Turkey. Toughest opposing player you've ever gone up against? Well, I have to go to, you know, 
facing, you know, Dream Team and trying to guard Charles Barkley and then uh, got a chance with Olympiacos um, play against the Chicago Bulls in 97, I would say, Michael Jordan. Best Seton Hall player you've ever seen play? Well, I played with a lot of good ones. Uh, Anthony Aven, Terry DeHair. I'll mention Jerry. I'm going to put you on the spot. You got to pick one. Give me, the, give me the best. Come on. Oh, the <laughs> best. Wow. Well, the highest score, I would say, I would say Terry DeHair. Well, congratulations, Arturis. You've walked the plank. Thank you. Well, Arturis, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and spending it with us. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. Arturis Karnishifus. How lucky were we this summer to talk to all these great Seton Hall former players and folks that are somehow intertwined with the team? It was awesome. I mean, specifically this last one with Arturas. I mean, most of the players had great stories to tell while they were players at Seton Hall. And obviously, obviously Arturas had those same stories, but he was one of those players that was able to kind of elaborate in so many other aspects of his pre-Seton Hall days, his post-playing days professionally, and then also what he's done from an executive perspective. I mean, he's got some great stories that I did not know to that kind of level of detail that made this interview that much more special compared to some of the other ones we've done. And that's that's no slight on the other interviews, but to get to listen to someone talk about playing up against the Dream Team and he was just in such awe of the moment that he's taking pictures on the sidelines while the game's going on still. And and, and he's able to laugh about it and have retrospect uh, to those aspects of, of his life and, and really you know cherish those moments. That was kind of cool to hear throughout this interview. And I think people don't realize how decorated of an athlete he truly is. Olympics, European championships, European MVPs. I don't want to say he was a forgotten man, but if you go back to that specific 1992-93 team and look at the dynamic of that team, you have Terry DeHair getting all the national accolades for you know, setting the Big East scoring record, finishing on the All-American team. And then you have an outspoken individual in Jerry Walker that was the, the vocal team leader. And once again, this is no knock on Artie, but m- maybe he kind of faded to the background a little bit, and then people kind of forgot how great of a player he was. We listed off some of his statistical accomplishments. He's right up there with the great players in all of Seton Hall's history. He just really is. People need to be careful when they start making comparisons, Michael. This is uh, one of the it. greats. Don't do it. Let's end on a positive note here. Anyhow, yes, we have, we're have. we going to end on a positive note. We have lots of people to thank this year. There were a lot of people this year that helped us get these interviews. You know, Outside of just grinding and getting back to folks, we want to thank the following people. We want to thank the folks at Team Walker. We want to thank the sports communications departments at St. Peter's and Binghamton. We also want to thank the PR departments of the Denver Nuggets and the Phoenix Suns. Special thanks to John Fanta and Hall Dan for making introductions. And last but not least, let's thank the folks that joined us for interviews this summer. Thanks go out to Jerry Walker, Dave Popkin, Fuquan Edwin, Shaheen Holloway, Lavelle Sanders, 
Marcus Toniel, Mark Bryant, Brian Felt, and of course, Arturis Karnisovis. We are looking forward to more interviews next year, and we're looking forward to our regular scheduled podcast this year. Go Pirates! So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Thank you.